This is the Sensitive Rebel Podcast, and I'm your host, Steve McCready. Join me for conversations with fellow sensitive rebels as we discuss the challenges of making a difference in a world that touches us deeply. If you're ready to turn your sensitivity into a secret weapon, then you're in the right place. Let's do this. Hey there, Sensitive Rebel, it's Steve. So my guest on today's episode is Walt Hampton, and Walt is the founder and chief executive officer of Summit Success International, a global personal and professional development firm. He's also the president and chief operating officer of Book Yourself Solid Worldwide. He's an executive business coach, management consultant, and leadership trainer, as well as the author of two books, Journeys on the Edge, Living a Life That Matters, and The Power Principles of Time Mastery, Do Less, Make More, Have Fun. Walt's passions include high-altitude mountaineering, ultra-distance running, blue-water sailing, and adventure photography. He and his wife, author Anne Shabani, yes, that Anne Shabani from episode four of The Sensitive Rebel, live in Castle Townsend, Ireland. So I've known Walt for a number of years, and while he has obviously accomplished and done a whole bunch of things, he's also a very down-to-earth person, and he is uh, the first to admit that he has also had his share of challenges, obstacles, and wrong turns along the way. And you're going to hear about those, about how he's dealt with them, and about how he's learned and grown from them, and how they've ultimately been a part of his journey to the life that he has today. And so now, here's my conversation with Walt. My guest today on the Sensitive Rebel podcast is coming to us all the way from Ireland. Walt Hampton, welcome to the show. It's good to talk to you, man. I am so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. Always I'm happy to have a, have a chance to talk to you. Walt, I'm going to start with a question I like to ask everyone. What are you rebelling against? I rebel every day against settling for mediocrity. Tell me about the origins of that particular rebellion and how it's evolved for you. One of the things that gets me worked up, Steve, is when I see people either stuck in a place of victimhood or stuck in a place of unhappiness. And you don't have to look very far to see that. People just muddling through. It goes back to thorough lives of uh, quiet desperation. If it's not quiet desperation, it's least quiet despair and despondency. And I think, if anything, our experience through the pandemic has made that even more so. There's a lot of weariness. And as a result of that, people feel stuck and they feel as if they need to settle. And the settling thing is what gets me worked up, what I rebel against, because I think even in the most difficult of circumstances, we have choices. I would absolutely agree with you about that. And how we make those choices in the face of challenges is something that I'm definitely going to want to talk to you more about along the way here. I'm curious about times in your past where maybe you have settled for mediocrity or at least on a related level, settled for something less than what was really in your heart as far as choices that you made, things that you did or pursued. Please don't judge me, dear listeners. I was a practicing lawyer for 25 years. I went to law school as a default. I'm the oldest son of an Irish Catholic mother, so I was supposed to have been a priest. And I went to the seminary until I was invited by the rector of the seminary to consider alternatives after he had caught me one too many times 
in the moonlight. And after that, door number two for me was uh, medical school because my dad was a physician and my parents told me that I needed to become a professional. And so door number two was to go to medical school, which I did. And I loved medical school until I realized I didn't really like sick people. So that didn't work out very well. Door number three was law because that was the only other profession left, at least the way it was outlined by my professional parents. And I loved law school, but the day I began to practice, I realized that the fit wasn't right. And I spent the next 25 years in the law. And I knew that wasn't right. And I knew that the choice wasn't right. And I knew I should get out and I wanted to get out. And I settled and I settled for a long time. And I don't have a lot of regrets, but I wish I had not spent that amount of time settling. I'm curious why you chose in a sense, it may have been an unconscious choice, of course, but why you chose to settle for that? Because very clearly you said like the instant you started practicing and and we've all had those moments, I think, where we're like, as soon as we step in, we're like, this is not right. And yet you did this for 25 years. So tell me about that, you know, why you settled and how you got yourself through that. Cause that seems like an immense challenge. So fear is always the underlying factor and related to fear, of course, is the notion of sunk costs. I had spent a lot of time getting trained as a lawyer. I had spent a lot of time interviewing for this job. I had spent a lot of time studying for the bar. And I had, in 1984, $45,000 of student loan debt. And so the the sunk costs were huge. I also had 2.2 children and a minivan and a mortgage. And so I had a lot of debt, a lot of responsibilities. And so it would appear objectively that I was stuck, or at least my objective analysis suggested that I was stuck. While you were looking at all of those things around you that would suggest, well, here's all these challenges and obstacles and all these very common, I'll say traps of sorts, right? Like you're talking about the whole sunk cost piece, which is certainly a huge one. As you were going through your days in this trap, we'll call it, what were the sorts of feelings that you were having in that space? Frustration, loneliness, discouragement, despair, depression, just to name a few. There was an awareness. I remember the day so well. It was an October day. So you, you come out of law school in May and you graduate and then you study for the bar, which is usually in late July. And then you go to work in mid-August for the firm. And the shine went off very quickly. And by October, I was working 50, 60, 70, 80 hour weeks. And I remember this one Saturday morning, it was a beautiful early New England fall day. I walked into my 18th floor hermetically sealed office and I looked out on the river and there was these stacks and stacks of papers and briefs and books on my desk. And I just had this sinking feeling, is this the way it's going to be for the next 30 or 40 years? Uh, And so there was just this sense of despair and the feeling that kept coming up again was not unlike that commercial, it's time to make the donuts again every day. I'm like making the donuts, the same thing day in and day out. A bad scene from Bill Murray's Groundhog Day, just one day the same as the next. And this this sense of hopelessness that I will never escape from this. 
And how did you manage to get yourself through those days? Because as I'm even hearing you describe this, like I can feel in my gut this just, I remember my own days of being a cubicle dweller and, and how that felt. And I'm imagining as you're describing your situation, which sounds appreciably even worse than that. And I'm thinking like, how do you get through your days like this for not just a while, but 25 years? Yeah. So my self-medication of choice has always been on the resourcefulness scale, arguably more resourceful than others. And my self-medication is crazy outdoor activities. So I'm an ultra-distance runner, high-altitude mountaineer. I would escape into the mountains. I would escape into my running. And in those years, I would also escape into alcohol. I was a big fan of alcohol of all sorts. So that was another way to escape and to self-medicate. So it was self-medication of various degrees of resourcefulness. In those two, we've got a real strong juxtaposition of types of self-medication. One, actually, I think very good and adaptive and helpful. One, maybe not quite so much so. I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about what you think at any given time influenced your one choice of which one of those avenues you would go, but also what you recall as far as what each one of those provided to you or what those different experiences of escape felt like to you. The alcohol escape is the least friction. It's the easy escape. It's the uh, arguably the fastest way to numb. And so when time would feel tight, which it often did, that was a, a quicker exit. And always, always, I knew that that was not the best exit because it would never leave me feeling very good. In later years, as we become more fanatical about our endurance work and more mindful about diet and exercise and resourcefulness, if you invited me over to your house for a nice craft beer, I'd say sure. But by and large, alcohol just isn't something that we do because I like the focus and the acuity of showing up clearly and powerfully every single day without it. And so that it would have a numbing, a fuzzy effect, which never felt terribly good in retrospect. And as I let off our conversation today, there came a point in time where I began to make better choices around how I would medicate the, the hopelessness and despair and begin to choose the better over the worse, or at least relatively speaking, uh, way of medicating. But for me, the easy way was always a glass of wine or a beer or a martini, a chocolate martini, a chocolate espresso. But I, I digress. <laughs> so easy, quick, socially, and I would imagine professionally endorsed as well. Oh, sure. But you had this awareness of, sure, this is quick and easy in a sense, but ultimately kind of unsatisfying and not really working. And then tell me about the, the other side of this, the outdoors, adventuring, and that way of getting away from this and how you started to to see that the value in that, because that's not a quick or easy solution. We know that, but it's, I'm going to say it's a more effective solution in general. And it certainly sounds like that's been true for you. So tell me about how the, the pivoting happened there. Like with any dialing in of new habits, if you can get a little bit of a 
what I like to refer to as beachhead and, and habit creation. You can get at least a toehold and begin to have some positive feedback around it. Getting out for a two-mile run, which is not a big investment of time or resources, I would realize, wow, that leaves me feeling a lot better for a lot longer. Maybe I should do that more. And so just the intellectual analysis that this works better than that began to allow me to make that more deliberate choice more frequently. So being able to connect to the feedback of it, making it something that you were making easier to do, like you said, it's a lot easier to go out and run for a couple miles than it is to go say, oh, I don't know, tackle an ultra marathon. And as you were going out for these runs, these, I imagine gradually increasing in, in length, tell me about what some of the, I'll say conversations that were happening in your head as it relates to thinking about your career, your work in the law, and the you know unsatisfying, I think, in some ways, from what you've said, life that you were experiencing. What what sort of processing was happening around? It's an interesting question, which I'll just tease out a distinction, which is that in fact, unlike the alcohol, where space gets very fuzzy, when I am out in the mountains or out on a long run, space begins to open up, and for me there is a sense of connection with what is greater in the universe. There's a greater sense of connection with possibility, with creativity. And so that would allow me to begin to ideate, at least in the early stages, about what else might be possible. As that started to come into view for you, I can imagine in my head that would create some tension between that image of a possible future and the unsatisfying present that I was in. But what was your experience around that? Was there a conflict or tension that emerged as you kept thinking about this on your runs? Huge tension. And the clearer I became about the fact that I wanted to explore other possibilities, the greater the tension. Because as I said, I had, quote, responsibilities. And as time went on, more and more responsibilities, more and more debt, more and more things that I had to do, more and more boards that I sat on. And it did begin to impact and constrict. And ultimately, it probably um, was a linchpin in the unraveling of my first marriage because I had created a life structure around Walt as the successful trial lawyer. That was the deal that I had created with the mom of my kids, and that was the structure, the expectation, and all of a sudden, I was beginning to question and begin to question in the open the very foundations of that whole arrangement. Was there a specific tipping point or moment where the the balance shifted from, okay, I've got to figure out a way to maintain this current existence to... I've got to get out of here and it doesn't really matter what it costs, but I can't keep doing this. Yeah. There came a point in time where there was a tipping point and I ended up leaving the marriage, leaving where I was living and actually going back to school to do graduate education. So, and and it was a very uncomfortable, painful time. It was uncomfortable and painful for me. It was uncomfortable and painful for my spouse and for for our children. And I don't recommend the path for anyone because there are consequences to the choices that we make. And I don't think I did it terribly artfully or, or 
thoughtfully or with a great deal of emotional intelligence. And I know that the unresourceful way that I did it, I think in retrospect, I, I could have caused less pain if I had been more integral. You can have the insight, of course, in, in hindsight going, okay, I didn't do this in a very clean and artful way and I would like to do it differently. But is it really fair to hold yourself to that if you look at who you were and where you were then? Is that something that that Walt could have done? I truly believe that for most of us, we are doing the very best we can do in any give, at any moment in any given set of circumstances. Very few of us enter into difficult choices and say, I'm going to do a really sloppy job here. I, I think we do the best we can. We do the best uh, we can with the circumstances. And I look back at that Walt and I say, you did the best you could. It was a shit show. You created a shit show, but you did the best you could. We do the best we can. So what was the tipping point? Is there a story around that? So the story around that was that I had become much more engaged in emergency medicine around that time. I became an emergency medical technician, even though I um, was no longer in medical school. I began working in an emergency department and I began to see all sorts of other things that I might do. And the more I pulled away from the law, the more I began to step away from the law, the greater the rift in the relationship became. And that rift just opened up and it became a chasm. So as you took some of these thoughts and ideas that you'd been having on your runs and then started to actually make them real, right? Through engaging more in this and you started to get the actual concrete experience of a different world, a different possibility that gave it more and more energy and traction to the point at which it eventually sort of tore your old life apart. Now, I can imagine that period of time would be a very mixed period. On the one hand, you've got a new direction that you're exploring and pursuing that is an escape from this you know, the trap, I'll call it, of the law. But on the other hand, there's all the interpersonal challenges of divorce, of the, the impact of that on the kids, and just all the other so many things that really come into play in a divorce, it just how much it just really does tear up your life. So how did you manage those two contrasting experiences in your life at that time? I had a, an amazing therapist. And so what was it about that work for you doing the therapy and the way that you worked with that therapist that helped? What were the things about that experience that maybe most stick out to you? I would say it allowed me a place to hear my own thinking outside the deafening craziness of my mind, that it allowed me a space to talk out loud, to hear myself talk, to have it reflected back. But I was particularly lucky to have a therapist who was also very practical. He was an ed D. He was very steeped in behavioral and cognitive behavioral and psychodynamics, but he would be not bashful about telling me exactly what I should do. And he would always keep a yellow pad and a pencil next to his seat. And whenever I'd be deep into it, oh my God, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. And he'd hand me the yellow pad and the pencil. And he said, so write down what you're going to do now. Write it down. What are you going to do now? It was very operational. 
And uh, he was also not very bashful. I remember one day we had this, he was at the end of his career. So he didn't really, didn't really lock himself into 45 minute hours. And there was this one session where we'd gone for like two, two and a half hours. And I had cried and wept and kvetched. And so we were making the appointment for the, the next session. He looked up at me, handing me the card. And he said, this week, try not to be such a putz. <laughs> that, that's a very creative and unique therapeutic intervention, I think. <laughs> it, was very, it was such a grounding experience. Fast forward to now, as I work as a coach, I think one of the gifts of great therapy or great coaching is you can begin to hear your coach or your therapist on your shoulder. And I'd be able to I'd come to a situation and I could hear Herb speak to me from my shoulder as to what the next step should be. And I know this in my own therapy and coaching work with clients that you get to a point with them where you can be more blunt, I guess, with them and they hear it in the context that it's intended. Because if some random stranger to you says to you, try not to be such a putz, that feels pretty insulting. But <laughs> I'd imagine coming from him, you heard that in a different sort of way. Yeah. Oh, it was meant with great love and constructive recommendation. Mm -hmm. So what I'm hearing here, though, is that therapy, it really helped from the, the standpoint of perspective. It helped you to be able to step outside of yourself and really in two ways, not just in, in your therapist's perspective on you and him being able to share that, but in you being able to see yourself from outside of yourself. Yes. I think that is one of the great gifts of that relationship. I want to loop back to childhood before we reconnect um, here and on, on your journey. But I'm curious about thinking about things like feelings and perspective and all of that about how your, I'll say childhood and family experience influenced you in multiple ways. Because I know I've heard bits from your story about how mom was like, you need to be a priest and all of that. But I'm curious about how much your wants, your needs, your feelings were explored, supported, what was done with them in your home growing up? My parents were both amazing human beings. They're both gone now. Both amazing human beings. Super, super smart, very driven. They had a very difficult, challenging marriage. Extraordinarily challenging marriage. One would say highly contentious. And so I was the oldest of seven. So there wasn't a lot of time for warm, fuzzy feeling stuff. I, I have very little memory of having my feelings heard and understood. And because of the level of contentiousness that existed between 10 and 17, I spent most of those years doing shuttle diplomacy between my mom and my dad. And so the high school years felt rather empty as well. Now, that all sounds all sorts of dark and bleak and all of that. The gift out of all that, and I have unpacked the gift, is I really learned to become self-sufficient I really learned to become confident and secure in my own person as a result of having to do that in those years. And I emerged from that period of time, even into my early 20s, taking on leadership positions and feeling confident in leadership positions as a result of that. I think that's a common experience when we in childhood have to take on a greater degree of responsibility and don't have as much support is it does sometimes force us to develop some of that of an independence, that resilience and adaptability that isn't necessarily, you know, there by default. I'm curious, 
though on a flip side of this, that as you said, there wasn't a lot of room for warm and fuzzy feelings. And as you're busy playing diplomat between your two parents, while you're going through your adolescent years, a feeling time for anybody, I'm wondering what you did with whatever feelings you were experiencing, because they had to be there. Like, where did those go? How did you deal with them? I had some really good friends who have stayed good friends. And I had a, a beautiful and sweet girlfriend at the time who I connected with. And I had some great mentors. As uh, I alluded, I was in the seminary. Even in my high school years, I had a wonderful spiritual directors who were probably the the predecessors of my affection for coaching, consulting, and therapy work. And so I had great sounding boards. I had great friendships and I had um, a tender love interest. So those things were really good. So there was a lot of support there for you, it sounds like. Oh, for sure. Now, I know as I've heard you you talk in other conversations um, that you've had with people, your decision to enter the seminary at least was in part driven by your mom's influence. But I'm interested in hearing for you, because I can imagine there's at least some part of you that was also had some interest or, or some, you know, draw to it. So tell me about that and about your experience in you know going through that process. Yes, it was also an independent draw for me. I think for me then and now, part of the draw of priesthood was and still is the importance of presence to me, to be present in the world, to show up fully in the world myself, and to be present with other people. Writers talk about a, a through line. Speakers talk about a through line. If if I were to study the through line of my life, the desire to be present with other people through difficult times, whether it be in the seminary or in a situation where there was some catastrophic emergency that I was the first responder for, or whether it was in my work, in my internship work, in my master's of clinical psychology, or whether it was as a coach, that through line plays through. And even to this day when I'm teaching coaches and I'm working deeply enough with them, I say that one of the things we're doing is we're holding sacred space with someone else. We are creating a container in which we can do deep work. And for me, that container, whether you called it priesthood early on, or now it's the work I do as, as a coach, that container accesses places that some might call the, the transcendent, the universal being, whatever that experience is. And that experience of transcendence, that experience of presence with a capital P has always informed my work and my life. So in your time in the seminary, and, and it sounds like that was a case where there was this core idea of presence and connection and support, it was aligned with that. It just wasn't the right vehicle for you to be able to do and to be that is what it sounds like to me. Yeah. Without getting too um, political on your podcast, I think the greatest oh, go damage for it. to, <laughs> I think the, the greatest, the greatest damage to spirituality has been done by institutional religion. I think when you take 
an idea of the transcendent, when you take the big P in presence, the big L in love, and you try to build a structure around it. In our human frailty, we always go off the rails with that. Dear colleague, great teacher, John Shelby Spong, a bishop of New Jersey, who was a teacher of mine in the seminaries, wrote a book called The Sins of Scripture. And I think a lot of uh, malfeasance has been done. But that's not to say that the finger pointing at the moon is the moon. That's not to say that the religion is the thing. My dear Irish Catholic mother would wring her hands and say, honey, I hope you won't ever lose your faith. And by faith, she meant your affiliation with the Roman Catholic Church. For me, faith is that connection with that greater presence. So thinking about where we had started with you talking about rebelling against settling, I'm wondering what your thoughts are as far as how institutions and entities, whether it's the church, whether it's some big law firm, how do those structures contribute to settling or interfere with our ability to be our you know, most fully expressed and genuine selves, do you think? I think structures, when they're created by definition, I mean, the the word structure, when you talk about structure, you think about building or parking garage, and it is a settled thing. It's there. It's static by definition. And I think when something becomes static, it can become stale. And so without people making choices, without people becoming part of the dynamic without people looking for how we can recreate. And I speak to this all the time. I think we as human beings have the opportunity and the obligation to be constantly co-creating and recreating ourselves and in turn recreating the institutions and the structures in which we live so that we can constantly evolve and be better. Now I want to jump back to where we had left your story of you deciding that you were going to you know, get more involved in emergency medicine and doing all of that. So tell me about how that emerged and evolved and where things went professionally from there for you. I, from a very young age, not only pretended to be a priest, uh, make-believe, but I also had this interest in being in medicine. I was probably the only eight-year-old on my block who had a a full-size model of the heart and a skeleton in my room and a chemistry set. And for science projects, because my dad was into kidney dialysis, I used to run dialysis machines at the science fair. That The medicine thing had always been there as well. And when the door to the priesthood when the, when the rector invited me to close the door to the priesthood, I cast about for, for what door number two might be. And so I went back and I did organic chemistry and I did a post-baccalaureate program and I got into medical school. And I got into medical school at a time where I had a lot of other stuff going on. I spent two years in medical school. I was already early on in, in my law world. And I was trying to balance all of these things. And the wheels, after two years, the wheels came off the cart. It was not sustainable. And again, I look back and I wish I have regret because I loved medical school. I loved the healing presence of medicine, but it wasn't sustainable. And and I know I did my best. I gave it my best shot. No reasonable person probably could have balanced everything I was trying to balance at the time. But my work then, my volunteer work as an emergency medical technician began to become a 
substitute for that. Yeah, I was wondering when you might have been sleeping while you were busy juggling all these different things. Yeah, <laughs> not so much in those days. So connecting back to you know doing this EMT work, another way, again, that allows you to be present with others in distress and be of support to them. But as, as we know, knowing where you are today and with your work as a coach and speaker and such, that EMT is not there. So where did things go from that? Why did that not be continue to be the primary route for you? It's funny you say that because I continue to be a, a wilderness first responder. So there's still that through line too. It's still there. It's just a parallel track. It's a side thing. It's not the primary thing, but it is still something that you've held on to. So tell me the story about how the coaching piece of who you are came into existence and, and on your journey here. After the wheels came off the track in my marriage, I thought that I was going to be the typical single dad who had his kids one weekend, every other weekend, and a week in the summer. In fact, I relished that thought. Because by that time, I was so weary and fatigued and despondent and despairing. It turned out as a result of probably the topic of another hour-long podcast. I ended up with my kids. I ended up being a single dad. I raised three, three young boys. My daughter was out of the house at the time. But I young, raised three young boys essentially on my own for 12 years. And that became a single focus for me for a long time. So I doubled back down on what I knew. I founded my own law firm, which kind of got me out of the corporate world. And I doubled down and became very single focused on, on raising my boys and trying to do the best job I could do as a dad. They grew up. They began to get their own lives. My sisters came to me and said, Walt, but you really ought to get out in the dating world and have a relationship because your kids aren't going to need you anymore. And I went on Match.com and met this amazing woman who became my wife. And um, for our very first Christmas gift, Anne gave us tickets to Tony Robbins' Unleash the Power Within. And I said, oh, that's lovely, but I don't want to go. I don't want to drink the Kool-Aid. I don't want to stand on chairs. She said, oh, honey, it will be good for us. And so she dragged me kicking and screaming to Tony Robbins in Orlando, Florida. And I jumped on chairs and yelled and screamed and drank the Kool-Aid and then ended up talking her into the upsell of Mastery University that was uh, $20,000 that we did not have in two years. And it was a life-changing. That was one of those inflection points in our lives, one of those turning points. And along the way, I was invited by Tony's team to apply for his school of coach training. I had no idea what coaching was, but I applied for it and went into it and fell in love with it. So you're at this event and what were you experiencing in that event? What were the thoughts and feelings going on in your head? Because clearly this was a very, again, you said this inflection point. Tell me about the conversation in your head around that. First of all, I'm an introvert. So going to a center where there are 3,000 people yelling and screaming and chanting, so that was sensory overload. So there was, in a sense, a pattern interrupt. Those of us who know that term, there was this pattern interrupt from going from this complete inward-facing introvert to this environment where things were so crazy. And then Tony, as you may or may not know, is incredibly captivating, and he's very effective with his tools of neuro-linguistic programming and anchoring. And so I just, I began just to feel 
more and more energized and more and more filled with with possibility. And just whatever that Kool-Aid was, I just began to be more and more optimistic about what the future could hold. And when I left that, I was on a high that I had never, ever experienced before. You're drinking the Kool-Aid, as you say, but I find myself thinking that part of it was because some part of you recognized something in the Kool-Aid. It's Again, this comes to the through line. Yes. And so I'm wondering how aware you were at that particular moment of the theme of this through line, if that was something that was consciously there, or if you think that was just an unconscious force or what? A great question that I hadn't connected the dots on. So thank you. So in that moment, what I think had been subliminal and subconscious about the power to choose the covert understanding that we have the power to choose and co-create became overt. And I heard someone else speaking out loud to it that, yes, I had the power to choose. I had the power to change. I had the power to become the architect of my own future. That strikes me as a very freeing and energizing awareness as I'm thinking of who you might have been at that particular point in your journey. Yes. No question about it. No question about it. So they invite you to apply to be a coach. You do that. Tell me about that. All of a sudden, all the pieces parts came together. I realized that my desire to be present with other people, to be a force for healing, my problem solving and listening skills as a lawyer, my analytical skills, all of my tools, all of a sudden, it was like the tumblers in a lock just falling into place. And it was like, oh my God, all of this comes together in such a cool way. I can use all of this as a force for good and I can enjoy it too. And I immediately fell in love with the process. And so it was like all of these pieces from decades of time all of a sudden made sense as a whole for me. And I just, I was like, wow, I want to do more of this. So I, actually in typical form came back and I was still in the law firm, but I also went to work for Tony full time, (laughs) which was an amazing experience, except not because I was working all the time. The amazing part was that I I had so many clients. I had such a fire hose of work. I had so much airtime as a coach. I learned very fast to become an effective coach. And because I'm entrepreneurial in nature, Ann and I looked at each other at a point in time about 18 months after that and said, let's build a business around this together. So it really, it sounds like this was the spot where, like you said, everything just clicked into place and all of the, all the pieces you'd been building were finally all aligned as you'd been finally found, wait, here's the thing that actually ties all this together. And I I think when people have those moments, it's really powerful for us. It's like we suddenly get connected almost with some kind of a flow or something. And energetically, it is really radically different, which is one of those things anyone who's experienced and knows, like I see you nodding, but it's hard to describe to someone who hasn't had it happen. Lights me up to this day. Exactly. To this day, it lights me up. So you decide to make this leap. I'm going to do this, start a business around it. And this sounds very much not like a settling move. I can hear as we're going along your story here, 
these bigger and bolder and more independent steps. And at the same time, I can also imagine there's pieces of it that would be scary because starting a business and all is not exactly a little endeavor. So tell me about that journey a little bit and both the, the highs and maybe some of the lows or challenges that you experienced along that way. If one were to look retrospectively, you would see that we began to build this business into the storms, clouds of the Great Recession. And we owned a building in which my law firm existed and the uh, rents began to dry up and those businesses began to fail. And so the cash flow for the office began to be horrible. And I was less and less interested in uh, building a law practice. And so that revenue stream to begin to dry up. And we had uh, two kids in private colleges with exorbitant tuitions and massive credit card debt and uh, underperforming loans. And yeah, it was a really challenging time. And we actually doubled down at that moment on our own training. I had built a successful law firm kind of haphazardly, but I had no idea really how to go about the structural the, there, there, there actually is a roadmap for building a successful business, I discovered. And so we really leaned into our own personal and professional development. We got coaches, we invested in, in ongoing mentorship, and we got really good at business development and, to our credit, got really good at the whittling away debt. And on the one hand, we just leaned into the discomfort because we wanted it so much. We got the training we wanted. We got the coaching we wanted. And we eradicated the debt and we made it happen. And probably I would say about seven or eight months after we got good coaching support, we turned the ship around and I had begun to generate enough income from our coaching business that I had been getting out of the law firm that we're gradually able to let that piece go. And then it was probably another 36 months before we really liquidated the debt. Those sorts of moments are ones where you hit this space where it's, okay, we're trying to do this. There's a lot of challenges and problems here. It it sounds like a a pretty scary moment to have awareness of one, all this debt, all these financial obligations, things looking difficult. I think a lot of people in that moment might have turned around and gone back where they came from, right? Been like, okay, I need to go back to the safety of the law or whatever it might be. But you clearly did not. You said you doubled down. Now I heard the part about how exciting this was and how much it really felt like the thing to do. I got that part. How did you deal with all the threats and dangers that were present in that situation and whatever feelings came up with that? So two things. One, and I really want to, I want to underscore this because there's a romanticism to, I, I, I don't know, I should look it up someday. I think it's a girder quote, jump in the net will appear, which I think is utter BS. I think people who jump without nets end up dead on the sidewalk. It's romantic, it's sexy, it's good for uh, internet web copy, but it's just not real. And so I did, with the help of my own coach, I, I often use the metaphor, I had one foot on the boat of, I was going somewhere, this new business, and one foot on the static dock, which was my law practice. And I I straddled that. And that was really uncomfortable because I wanted to be on the boat, but I had to keep my foot on the dock. And so with her help, I was able to create a balance between those two places. And so I never jumped into the abyss and said, oh, whatever, it's going to, it's going to work. So that was, that's one piece that I think is really important. The other piece though, you alluded to, and it's this, when I realized that all the pieces had come together, realized 
that I wanted this with a capital W and it really mattered to me, then it was, I'm going to do this no matter what. How did you know that you really wanted it, that it was that important, that it was that big a deal? How did you know that? The Abraham Hicks work is interesting. The original law of attraction work uh, talks about the notion of want and wanting to know what one wants. I actually think there are only a handful of moments in life where you get that want that is that capital W. That, you know, it's you, and, and I can count them on one hand for me, where the, the want the, and the why underneath that want, the drive, it just so matters existentially that you're willing to do whatever it takes. And a lot of times when we say we want something, we don't say I'm willing to do whatever it takes. So those are really rare events. For me, it was this is the gateway to the work and the life that really matters to me. This is really what I want. And so that translated was not like I woke up and I, I can see that retrospectively now, but I was driven by the intensity of realizing that this was where all the pieces came together for me. So there's a meaning piece here. Meaning and purpose. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was there and you were really connected to that. And I would imagine that probably existed in fairly strong contrast to a lot of the work that you had done in the law. Yeah. Because as I said at the outset, the law was door number three. It was a default choice. Priesthood, while you know it continues as a through line for me, was my mother's choice. Medicine was my dad's profession. There was, this was, yeah, this is for me. This is mine. This is what I really want. This fulfills the deepest longings of my heart. Right. So this was the place where you finally found your path that was truly and completely and entirely yours. Yes. Now, while you're doing this and building building this business and getting this established, tell me about the role of your your running, your outdoor activities and your adventures. Cause you know, I know the running is like the least of the crazy things that you and Anne like to do. Tell me just tell me about how that supported and helped you to be able to take and create this business. The other beautiful historical piece about the beautiful and talented and sassy Anne Shabani was that when we got together, she was a runner. She was a distance runner. I was just a jogger when I met her. But I had been a mountain climber since I was 13. She said, honey, if I'm going to do this mountain climbing, you're going to learn to become a distance runner. And so I ran my first marathon at age 53 and my first ultra at 55. And I've now run many ultras. Last year, right before the craziness of our pandemic, we uh, we ran back and forth across the Grand Canyon in a day. So I became a crazy runner and she's become a very talented alpinist mountaineer. We have stood on four of the seven summits of the world together. They continue to be places where we can step out of the fray, where we can open up space, both alone and together. They become a, they're a place of connection they're a place where we go to self-medicate. We are probably fitter at the end of the pandemic than we ever were before. We have run thousands of miles. And so they continue, but at an even deeper level to be sources of physical well-being, mental well-being, emotional well-being, 
spiritual well-being and relational connection. And so if anything, over the years, those practices have deepened and broadened in their import and in their impact. That is quite possibly the most powerful advertisement I have ever heard for mountain climbing, running, outdoor adventuring. From a relational standpoint, when you hold your spouse on the end of a rope on a heavily crevassed glacier and your spouse goes in, you literally have somebody else's life in your hand when you're mountaineering. And it's it's a fascinating connection and a fascinating experience. We we're we're toying with a with a program with a keynote called the power of shared experience. And when you have those high octane powerful experiences, you are never the same again. And when you share them together, you are never the same as a couple again. I think that's a fabulous idea. There's so much potential in that. And Terrence Real, who's an author and does couples therapy work, he talks about intimacy in five ways. And one of those, he talks about physical intimacy. And with what you and Anne do together, these adventures totally fall into that. And it provides such a powerful example, I think, of how it can be connecting and how much it not only requires trust, but builds trust and all these other things. And I think that's, I'll say this, as I see and hear stories of so many relationships that have really been battered a little bit by the pandemic and by what's going on, I think there's a very real need there for that. And I know um, from the two of you how much you have found ways to connect and to really use these things that you do and that matter to you to support your relationship. So I think your experience and knowledge and that need, and there's certainly a, a connection there. It seems like a lot of potential for you. Thank you. Yeah, we feel the draw and I think that work and that message do matter. So thank you. I look forward to, to seeing with you, what you do with that, actually. That, that should be very interesting. So as we start to work our way into, I don't know about post-pandemic, but at least late pandemic and, and people getting back out into the world and vaccinated and, and such, what's next on the agenda for you as we go through 2021? What's coming up for you next? So uh, the pandemic period has been wonderful for our business. Our clients, our ideal clients used it as a time to double down on personal and professional development. We have an incredible incredible community of clients. And so we will continue to serve those clients post-pandemic. Each of us have one-to-many programs that we're very excited and proud of, which will continue to, to grow and develop and market and fill. And we'll continue to grow the team. We just we have been on a wonderful trajectory over the last 14 to 16 months. Many of the clients that we've worked with have seen 70 and 80% growth year over year. And you know we're about to enter into this period of time that will be our version of the Roaring Twenties. I think all of us are at an extraordinary inflection point. I think there's a lot of pent-up economic demand, a lot of pent-up consumer demand. There's going to be an extraordinary period of economic expansion that we're just really looking forward to leaning into and embracing and helping our clients to embrace. Related to that, so let's say we've got somebody who is maybe listening to this episode who sees that, oh my gosh, there is all this potential coming, there's all these opportunities, and yet maybe is wrestling with some of their own fears or self-doubt or what have you. How do they go forward and lean into that without settling? What are some of the things you would suggest for them to do? It's always about just taking one step, getting clear about what you want, 
and taking one step. When you get clear about what you want, like really want, making a decision that you are going to stay in consistent action. You've heard me say this before, and I have a rule. We run every day, but we never ask each other, do you feel like running? We rarely feel like running. Feelings are, they're, they're fickle. They come and go. But we want to run because, as we've talked about it, it has incredible ROI for us at so many levels. We want to run. We know the importance of why we run. And so we just make the decision. And so most times, motivation follows action. Now, I know how to run 50 miles or 100 miles, at least intellectually. But as I sit here in this moment, it's incomprehensible to me. But I do know how to take a step. And so when I know, what I want, and I've committed to why it matters to me, all I need to do is take a step. We do book signings. People will come up to us and say, oh my God, Mr. Hampton, Ms. Shabani, we always have wanted to write a book. And I want to say, just write the damn book. Um, Because if you wrote a page a day, you wrote just a page a day, the end of the year, you'd have some serious editing to do to get a 190-page book. So it's never, ever the size of the step. It's the consistency of the action. And so when people look at opportunities or possibilities, it's easy to go into overwhelm. But if you just take a step, and then the next day, take another step, and the next day, take another step, that's what's most important. Process and consistency. Cathedrals are built one stone at a time, sometimes over generations. One stone at a time. Races are one one stride at a time. Mountains are climbed one step at a time. I think that's such an important concept. It it differs from so much of the messaging that's out there about success, but I think it is absolutely the accurate message about how we build success. The interweb would have us believe that if we got this one bot or did these three things, we would be overnight successes and have eight-figure businesses. And I have built five really successful businesses from scratch. Every single one of them has taken time and a dirty four-letter word called work. And business, as I um, share with my clients, is not a linear curve. It is exponential. It bounces along looking like the x-axis for a long time. But I have seen really bright people, people who should, by all stretches of the imagination, succeed. I have seen them fail because they quit. And I have seen people of rather average capacity stay in the game to that inflection point and enjoy extraordinary success because they stayed at it. It's staying at it, being consistent, knowing what you want, and every day showing up and doing the work. Julia Cameron, who wrote The Artist's Way, said the job of a writer is to show up every day on uh, on the page. George Leonard, who wrote uh, the brilliant book Mastery, said the job in Aikido of mastery is to show up every single day on the mat. That's our job. Just show up. Know what you want to do and show up every day and do the work. You're bouncing along that x-axis and nothing seems to be happening and you're not able to really figure out like or believe, I'll say you're not able to believe that this is going to shift at some point. How do you get yourself to take another step, to keep going, to keep doing it? How do you do that in those dark moments? 
you can't do it alone. You got to have, if you, there's the old African proverb, if, if you want to go fast, go, go alone. If you want to go far, go with, go with others. And if you want to go far along that X axis to exponential success, you have to surround yourselves with others. My first coach I hired 14 years ago, she is still my coach in my life to, the, to this day. I, I don't know how I would be where I am today if I had not had her support. We have an amazing Platinum Partners community that I'm involved in. Just amazing, heart-centered entrepreneurs who we can go to even at our evolution and say, this isn't working or I'm discouraged. I, I want to throw in the towel. What do you think? No, stay along that x-axis. We can't do it by ourselves. We have to have others. We have to surround ourselves with other people who want for us, who who will hold us in our dis-ease and discomfort and walk with us along the lonely path. So, Walt, I, I like to, with the, the last little bit of time with my guests, if they're up for it, play a little game, which is called Let's Talk About a Challenge that you're currently wrestling with and see if I can give you some nudges or support around it. You up for it? Yeah. All right. So tell me about a challenge that you are currently wrestling with. When should we climb Mount Everest? Tell me more. Tell me what you're thinking about it and what kind of the options are there in your head. So it's a bucket list item. It's one of the seven summits. We've got four of them. Remember, we got we got more to do. And it's something that we really want to do that has been a lifelong uh, bucket list item for me. And we love our business and we love our clients. And we love the work we do. And it's 65 days away. And so the question is, is the right time to do it? And we do a lot of one-on-one work because we love it. We have scalable work we can do. So it's we're, we're balancing uh, how and when we might take that 65 days and uh, devote it to climbing Mount Everest. So I'm hearing a little bit of a mix. Some of the things you're saying are like, it's a question of when, but other ones sound almost a little bit more like when or if, almost as if part of you isn't quite at the point of, no, this is a thing that's going to happen. We just haven't figured out the how, but I'm not sure about that. Yeah, no, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. So I think that going back to that point I was making that it's rare when you say, I'm going to do something no matter what. I don't think that Everest has reached that point that we are going to do it no matter what. I think we want to do it without disserving the people that we care about and still being able to enjoy an experience unfettered. At the end of, not the day, but at the end of your life journey, will you feel like you settled if you decide not to do it? That is the question. What do you think? I think that if we weren't on your podcast, I'd swear at you right now. You can swear. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, because you have because you've got the ability to edit. <laughs> yeah, one I can edit, but two and and would just swear and go for it. I don't care. I don't think that I will. If I did not do it, I would regret it. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure. That is that is something that I grapple with. That certainly explains part of the the ambivalence around it, right? It's like, well, it's, it's not totally clear that it's compelling. And then to talk on the flip side of this, the lo- logistics of what do we do about our business and about our clients and, and taking care of them, you know, over this 65 day period, what thoughts have you had about that? Or, you know, have you gone about exploring the question of how would we deal with that? Yeah. 
Oh yeah, no, we talk about it. We have a great team and our team has been growing over the last year and we have other great coaches. We have the pieces in place or we are putting the pieces in place where it can happen. We, in non-pandemic times, we, uh, we're climbing a mountain every month of the year and traveling somewhere. So we're not poor people who sit in the corner and do nothing. So there are lots of mountains to climb. But that's a big that's a big objective that we're a bucket list item that we're grappling with. And I'm okay letting the question just to hold the question right now because I know I I have experience that over the course of time that when something becomes a must, I will do it. Definitely sounds like I hear there's a a desire to sort it out, but not a pressure to sort it out. It's a, we're working we're working the equation. We're trying to figure out what things we can do. What do you think is needed or necessary on the piece of whether this is a you know want to versus a need to? What's the kind of the the question or the data point or the thing that needs to to come out or emerge to get clarity on that? Do you think one is a what uh, is one is interesting and practical, which is the opening up of the Chinese side of Everest again. China has closed the the Tibetan side of Everest because of health issues, and we won't climb Everest from the Nepalese side because of the crowds, the congestion. That's not the alpine experience that we like to have together. So that will be one thing, but that that will happen in the next year or two. And the the other thing is, I think, is as as we grow our team, a greater sense of confidence that the team has it, and we're doing a great job with that. We have an amazing team. We have an incredible director of operations, and as we grow, we're getting more confident that the team has it when we're not directly forward facing. So it really sounds to me as I hear you talk about this, that this does not sound to me like, again, this is a thing of this has to happen. It's a thing of, yeah, I want it to happen. I very much want it to happen. We are actively taking action to support it happening. And at the moment, we're going to continue to work that equation and kind of see where that leaves us. And it may or may not be on either side of it, but... I'm also hearing because there's enough, again, plenty of other mountains to climb. There's the, the other seven summits that you haven't tackled yet and other, other things that it's, it is a thing that isn't, even if it's a bucket list item, it's like in the second tier of the bucket list almost. Yeah, I think that's right. And the list is very long. So, well, we know you're not going to be bored, but that's not exactly an issue for you anyway, is it? I, I, boredom, boredom, boredom has never, ever been an issue for me. <laughs> All right, Walt. So as we wrap things up here, where is the best place for people to find you and connect with you online? This is really complicated and I made it up myself. So everybody should listen carefully. It's walthampton.com. Wow. Um, yeah, that's pretty complex there, man. <laughs> How many degrees did it take for you to come up with that? Apparently quite a few. Nice. All right. So yeah, walthampton.com uh, is the best place to find find Walt online. You can learn about his adventures and his work and all of that. And Walt, as always, it is always fun to talk to you. And I'm really glad to have the opportunity to connect. And uh, thank you so much for your time and and for sharing your story here today. It was a wonderful opportunity, a great privilege to be with you and uh, share some time with your listeners. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. All right, man. Talk soon. That's it for this episode of the Sensitive Rebel Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. You'll find show notes, other episodes, and a whole lot more at sensitiverebel.com. We'll be back next week with another conversation. Until then, keep moving forward.